Welcome to Unexpressed, where we put words to the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today, we're continuing our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading. This is episode four. So again, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, go back and listen to those first. Today, we're going to be discussing characters and how authors make purposeful choices to create compelling ones. Last time we talked about empathy, and I feel like I monopolized the conversation (laughs) and didn't do a great job. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, a little bit more in the weeds of the actual art of storytelling. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to start with character, which sort of fits with where we left off of, you know, empathy and creating characters and how we see the world. And we pretty much left off, I think, with how exactly did we end? You said something that I thought this is a great place to cut. We'll just end it right here. (laughs) It was something along the lines of um, most characters are mostly like us, but just just enough different to give us that new perspective. Right. So I guess that's the lens, right? Mm -hmm. A little bit myopic, a little bit. What's the opposite (laughs) of myopic? Our our own prescription. Right. So how do you write that prescription? Well, this is something that I've actually put a lot of thought into and I've, you know, written some classes about and all that good stuff. Um, So when I'm writing a character, I tend to think of it not as not as a character necessarily having a particular voice, because voice is more what we use to describe we the authors, um, but they each have their own lens. So this lens is, you know, much like any lens. It's the thing through which they see the world. Um, so everyone has one, right? You have one, I have one, they're different. And it affects how we interact with everything in our day. Um, So, you know, I always use myself as my first example because I am a writer. Everything I do and everything I say and everything I think and everything I interact with goes through this filter in my brain of how do I put that down in words as a story. So it's not even just storytelling as in I'm crafting these worlds. It's picking the words to describe it. So that's how I view the world. Um, And I have these stupid memories of like walking the dog on a misty night and watching the mist go in front of a street lamp at our uh, townhouse complex and trying to find the words to describe this, you know, silvery light. And and I'm sitting here going, I'm because you can't just point a camera at it. Right, right. But here I am getting drenched. It's winter. I'm cold. And I'm standing outside with the dog thinking, how do I describe the light in front or the, the mist in front of this light? And it's it would seem silly to pretty much anyone else, right? That there's this crazy person standing outside staring at a streetlight. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's the way that I view the world. Um, so I came to realize as I was writing my characters that they each have their own lens too. And it ought to not only color the story that they are on, but the way they tell it. So when I approach a story through that means, it just makes each each character unique. It makes each character come to life because... All I have to do is kind of flip their glasses down in front of my face. Okay, you make that sound really easy. <laughs> Super easy. <laughs> so when you flip a, a, a set of glasses down in front of someone's face, you change your prescription. Uh-huh. What, what does that look like? 
<laughs> How much staring at the paper does it take before it, their lenses come yeah, into focus? Usually, because you're not that person, right? Like, no. And the, an interesting question I maybe want to touch on is how much of you is in that? Right. Well, I think, you know, I've come to see, well, what's in me is the way I'm going to construct a sentence sort of thing. Like, you know, the way I put their story onto the page, that's me. Um, but where it's them, and it, it takes a while to get to know them. And even when I have in my head who they are going to be, it still takes it takes a while to get to know that and to be able to, to be able to learn their prescription. You know, there's a lot of is clearer, clearer, blurry. better or worse. Yeah. Like, no, 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 that's not it. Oh, no, no, that's not it. That's not quite right. Let's delete this whole chapter. How do I get this person to go where I want? Right. Yeah, that's a whole different struggle. Um, but yeah, so it's not easy, um, but it, it is so immensely helpful. So I feel like I totally missed your question. <laughs> but Was there a question? Uh, oh, just what what is it? Like you make it sound like, you know, you drop this thing down and instead of saying, you know, the tablecloth was red, that person's going to walk in and if they're colorblind, they're not going to see the tablecloth as being red. <laughs> they're going to see it as being something else. Or they would never say the word red or... Right. Like, yeah. So, but, yeah. So how do you how do you build that lens? Yeah, it, it really requires being very deliberate. And I'm talking deliberate with every sentence sort of thing. And, you know, as speaking as a writer here, not necessarily in the first draft, but as you go back through, you're going to pepper these things in. Um, but an example I gave in a post I wrote recently was you can take a basic a basic action. He pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket. And, you know, you can color that based on how the character thinks and what the character feels. Uh, that was actually an example I used for a different one. Um, the, the example I think I used for that was, uh, what was it? Like, you know, he shrugged or something really, really basic, but the musician is going to see it as, you know, a musical action. Like he put a stop to something, like a conductor you know, signaling the, the end. Um, the mathematician is going to be looking at the angles his arms make. And uh, the clockmaker is going to be describing it as a mechanical action and the springs and the gears are winding or unwinding and turning. So each person is going to see it, the same action, through their own different lens. Right. And, and for anyone who says that, well, that's clever, artisms, or artisticness or like that's you being artsy <laughs> but that that's the way everybody sees the world and i'll give an example that is sort of an artsy example but i, I you know take a minute if you're listening and think what do i do on a daily basis and how does that color everything else um this person was talking about um he's a colorist basically uh makes movies pop right like you know the technicolor look maybe not going so far as technicolor but no but, but taking the image and making it Right. Better. I'm, I'm sure everyone has noticed that certain movies have certain, like, color grades. Like, right. Like, Band of Brothers is very monotone. Right. Or The Matrix is very green. Right. Yeah. Um, just, uh, so, but that's what he does for a living. And there are these things called color wheels. You've got three of them, and they're like, you know, you can adjust colors from red to blue. You can saturate or desaturate. And um, so sometimes he'll have these long days color grading, and he'll come and he'll sit down and have dinner with the family. And he'll be like, oh, I need to punch up the shadows on that. And I need to adjust the, the, the you know, red hue in my wife's, you know, shirt. And maybe I need to whiten her teeth. And, you know, <laughs> right. so he's, he's color grading the world around him. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what he's been doing. That's what his mind has been doing for so long. 
that that's just how he's now seeing the world. Right. And I think that we've all had that kind of experience where like you've, you know, done an action that's repetitive for so long or you've, you know, stared at something for so long. You've worked on a problem for so long that everything you see is related to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think some examples that, you know, I probably saw in literature way back in the day was, you know, the commanding officer calls his children soldier. And, you know, when he's leaving home, he tells them to be a good soldier and take care of their mom. And, you know, that's how he sees the world. And, you know, pick pick any number of examples, right? The CEO is going to be treating his family either like employees or like up and coming partners in the firm. And they've or got like to, investors. Yeah, or... they have to earn their keep or they have to, you know. But you know, we all treat our worlds in in our own unique way. In our world, we don't make those choices, right? That's just, it's it's natural. So right. how do you make purposeful decisions seem natural, right? Like if you had heard a story, you know, my colorist story, if you had heard that and you had a colorist in your your book, like that would be a no-brainer because you already knew the story, right? <laughs> um, a, a, another example we just came across was a person who was the, you know, captain of the submarine in the hunt for Red October, Um got to shadow an actual submarine captain. And he said, I just stole his all of his mannerisms. There was no creativity <laughs> right. in the way I did it because obviously this is how a submarine commander would be. Um, but when you're writing it, you don't always have that privilege, right? Like you don't know how uh, uh, an insecure duchess from Scotland, to take an example, <laughs> is going to see the world, right? Like right. that's pretty far from your experience you don't have a whole lot to draw on. Yeah. Like some people might go and find diaries of certain people and try to pull things out of it. Yeah, some people do. Weird people. <laughs> All that research on that. Well, but sometimes I wonder, and if you're one of those people, go ahead and complain. But sometimes I wonder if that's not a hindrance, right? Where you're, you're trying to put this round peg in a square hole. Well, I think for some people, that's how hole. they get to know a character. True. Um, and so, you know, we each have, as writers, we each have our But the characters methods. don't always comply. Oh, no. Characters never comply. <laughs> no, matter, no matter your method, they're going to fight you. But, um, but I mean, for me personally, because, you know, I can speak to my own experience best, I do a lot of research on the history because that's what's there. That's what's set in stone, so to speak. But when it comes to characters... You know, I figure I'm a person and that's most of the experience that I need, right? We're, we're all pretty rich if we're really willing to de- dig, ah, I can't talk, if we're willing to dig down deep enough, then, you know, Rowena, my my duchess from the Scotlands, who's pretty broken, um, my starting place for her, my lens for her is in the first paragraph where it says, you know, she should have been enough, but she wasn't, basically, that she tried all her life and and here she is broken and nothing she ever did was good enough. She was never good enough. And that is the lens through which she sees the world. You could also describe it as the lie she tells herself. This is a frequent fiction, you know, way to state it. Um, But, and then I kind of pulled in for her character, um, a quote from George Mueller or part of his story anyway, where he is praising God for the empty plates in front of him. So I, I took that, And just kind of made it, Rowena has a lot of empty plates in front of her. She has a lot of empty places in her soul and she needs something. Which is another way of saying it's an an opportunity. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's what the lesson is from George Mueller, that this empty plate in front of us where there should be food and isn't is a chance for God to provide. 
Um, but that's the journey Rowena has to go on. She has to go from seeing an empty plate to seeing... To seeing an opportunity for God to work. And she also has to go from that thought of, of I'm not enough. What's in front of me is not enough to God is enough through me. So yeah, so that her lens is, is, is emptiness, which is, you know, a kind of strange thing to think of as a lens, but it's there. And, and I think, you know, everyone has that. It's part of their story. So when an author is trying to figure out what their character's lens is, it might take some trial and error, but once you, once you realize what it is, once you realize who they are in that little nutshell, your job as an author then to really make them come to life and really make them pop is to be deliberate in every single choice you make as, as you're presenting them. Every single part of their story, you get to choose to tell through their lens. Right. And this is something that I, I almost describe as like when you do all of those things, you're not just telling a story, you're making an argument. Yeah. You're making an argument about this person. Um, so, like, you look at it as telling a story. Well, the story can be told without all of that. Yeah, it can. You can tell the story straight. You can have him pull out the handkerchief. You can have him shrug. You can have her be sullen and, you know, spiteful on occasion. That is Rowena. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you could just simply have the actions, right? Like, that's how a screenplay is written, right? Like, right. No, no motivation, just, just the facts. Sure. Here's what happened. And, you know... In, in that case, actors have to fill it in mm-hmm. and do a greater or a lesser job, depending. So when you're doing all of this extra stuff, like these are really important things to drop in. And they have to serve the character and they have to serve the whole of the story. Mm-hmm. Which is, this is why I call it an argument. Like, I think that there's different levels of like making, maybe... Maybe again, I'm being too judgmental on on some some other storytellers. But if you're not making these kinds of choices, maybe you should start thinking about it because this is how you could you go from, you know, just telling a story over dinner, or, you know, or whatever, to weaving an argument that says this is true. And that was where I wanted to go with the argument thing. Is this goes back to what we talked about with fact and fiction and truth, mm-hmm. you know, fiction telling truth is. These choices are what make a person go, that's true. Right. It's what makes it resonate. As opposed to it just being a story. Yeah. Well, and I, I, when I heard you say that's the, you know, R, I'm thinking the art instead of argument. Well, yeah, okay. Um, but, but I think they have the same purpose because I think art's purpose is pretty much always to engage someone. I, I would even say at the soul level or at the heart level. In a, you know, you can look at it and just see, talk, if you think of visual arts, you can look at it and just see colors on canvas or whatever. But when you step back, you see a picture that means something. Um, and this is why, you know, abstract art is its whole other thing, right? Some people look at it and see this deep meaning. Other, other people go, yeah, my kindergartner could do that. Um, so I've got a whole drawer full of them. <laughs> right. Can I sell them for a million dollars? But, but it, it is. It's, and this is what, you know, actors or directors or colorists do to film. And it's what, you know, a good author is going to do to a basic story. They take it and they breathe something into it. This is where we're imitating God, right? We're being the creator and we're breathing life into this clay figure. Right. Like, it's not enough to have the bones. Right. No, that's not alive. <laughs> so... So that's what an artist does. Um, so they take the basic and they put something new into it to make it really come to life. 
and you know I love the art of wordsmithing so that's something that that I love to do I'm I'm not just a storyteller I'm not I'm not you know trying to be down on anyone who identifies himself as a storyteller storytellers are awesome um, but I have I have stories but the real joy for me is taking those stories and putting words to them that's why I said my lens is writer it's it's the actual putting words to something yeah so that makes me wonder then what if any responsibility there is on behalf on behalf on on the part of the reader to participate hmm. it, like do some stories demand a more attentive reader yeah <laughs> for sure cuz i mean stories or is it or is it enough that there's subtext levels. um is it, you know if hmm. no one notices that you know Margot sees everything as angles and numbers I mean, that's hard to miss to a certain degree because it's so <laughs> it's different yeah. from what, what we talk about. But the other example that I, I come back to, because it is a little bit more subtle, is, and I'm forgetting her name, in Wings of Devotion. Arabelle? Arabelle, thank you. You're welcome. Like, I know my character's name. Her, her, I think if we talked about this, maybe in the very first one of these, or maybe it was... We touched on her a bit. We touched on her a bit. So like her lens is not all that different from, you know, maybe a normal person. So maybe you talk a little bit about that and how, because I feel like her lens is much more subtle than, say, Margot's. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mar Margot's lens was very distinct. <laughs> so not easy to write, but very distinct. But yeah, Arabelle was very different um, from that. She's She is in some ways what you would call, you know, the poor little rich girl. Um, who, you know, wah, wah, her parents were away all the time. She had to go to boarding school. Oh, I feel so sorry for her, which is what I was afraid people would would think just, and that's that's the story you could have told, right? If you just look at her facts. Yeah. Oh dear, you're a heiress millionaire. Yeah. I feel so sorry for you, right? But it is so little of her story. <laughs> right. That's, that's not what anyone thinks of when they read her. And that's, you know, it's because of how I chose to tell her story. And that was that, you know, she was abandoned is what she was. She was an abandoned child. Her mother died. Her father was literally lost. He was out exploring somewhere. You know, he was an adventurer. He made a choice and disappeared. Yeah, he made a choice to go, you know, seek adventure somewhere, which meant he left his daughter absolutely alone because her mother died and he didn't know it for two years. They couldn't find her aunt. She was off on some spiritual retreat in the mountains of Italy. And so she was abandoned. And this, you know, this shaped entirely who she was to the point where, yeah, then she became the heiress and she inherited from this aunt who had been away. Well, the funny thing about that is when you're a child, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. You don't know, right? That's right. just how things are. You know, I've talked about being, you know, not particularly well off. I have another friend who was like, I didn't know that we were poor because when we were a kid and the power would be shut off in the summer, we would never know it because we would be out, you know, playing <laughs> all day. Right. You know, so as a kid, that's not like the things that we think of as adults don't matter. Right. But it does shape our yeah. lens. Yes. You don't always sure. go back to the children, but you do surprising amount, actually. Well, I mean, that's who we start as, you know, it's it's who we, but, but then anyway, what I'm shaped sorry. her even more was, you know, she made the choice to become a nurse. And her, her reasoning for this was her mother basically died of dehydration. Uh, you know, she, she had a fever and it wasn't the illness itself. It was the complications that we today, you give them an IV and they're fine. This was 1900. There was no IVs. <laughs> and she she didn't understand, obviously, at age six what had happened. But as she 
matured, she realized, you know, had I known something, I could have saved my mother. So how can I save other people? How can I help other people? Um, and she became a healer, not just in the sense of I'm a nurse, but in the sense of every person she meets, she's looking for where they're hurt. She's looking for where they're broken so that she can try to help heal it. And she feels that God has called her to this. There's a, a line in the novel where he says, if you want to be healed, heal others. And that's what she spends her life doing. She knows she still has this broken part inside and that the only way she can ever heal it is to be Jesus's hands and feet and, you know, be him to a hurting world and go out and try to help other people get over their heartbreaks, their physical breaks, whatever it may be. So, you know, that's her lens. She sees everybody through this, you know, where are you hurting and how can I help? Yeah, so what was my point of that? Um, <laughs> because I was asking a little bit about the question of how much is the reader responsible for that? Like, So with her, is it enough that they detect that through subtext? And how much of that do you really want a person to to really ingest, to really make a part of themselves? I mean, I don't think they need to be able to write a book report on you know how she embodies these things or you know, fill in the blanks of what is her calling and how does God no, speak No, no, that's not what I but mean at all. I think but what, how does it affect, how does it affect them? Right, yeah, but what I think, you know, a, a reader who is paying attention or, you know, really involved in a book should come away with is, you know, almost what lesson has she learned and how does it apply to me? And, and what I, lesson have I learned? Like, I, I'm also curious about this idea of how much of it this might go back too much to the empathy question to a degree, but how much do I learn by, you know, being in their skin, right? being in their head? It doesn't matter whether they learn it or not, right? Like the character? The character. <laughs> yeah. But what does the reader... But what does the reader yeah, learn? Yeah, because that's, that's the purpose, right? I'm not telling this story for the sake of the character, because the character only exists in my own head until I tell the story. I'm telling well, the story... it might be enough for you. It might be. There are people who, you know, if I were writing for me, that would definitely be true. Um, my, Me personally, I write largely as a ministry. It is part of who I am. But the, the purpose of going through this whole publication process is because I really feel that that's how God has called me to interact with the world on his behalf. So I'm writing for the reader. So I obviously want the reader to connect with the characters and to get something out of them. And I want, I always want it to make them look more deeply at themselves because I sure have to look more deeply at myself when I'm writing it. Um, and that's, I mean, going back to the Arabelle example, since we were just talking about her, some of my early, the early readers who contacted me, you know, I, again, I was terrified that I was going to get a bunch of, oh, poor little rich girl comments. But instead what I got was, you know, because another part of Arabelle's way of healing people is she is... I would say generous beyond, you know, comprehension. Like she does not consider whether she, you know, has enough to do something so much as if I can meet a need, I'm going to need it, meet it. That's the most important thing to her. Um, so I had people emailing me saying, you know, Arabelle made me pause in question. Am I, am I that willing to help people in need? Am I willing to sacrifice what I do have in order to help someone else and, you know, to, to examine their own hearts in that way. Or am I clinging too much to my things? Um, Cause you know, there's a point where she says, the things don't mean that much. I can take them, I can lose them, whatever. Right now they're what God's given me. But if they're not, a, if they're but not But if I his, give them all away in the next 
couple of years or however long it takes. Right. It doesn't change anything about who you are. Right. Or who she is. Yeah. Her her view is it's just a tool God gave me. So I'll use it for him or there's no point in having it. So, you know, do we as as readers, do we do do I as the writer can we say the same about ourselves? Are we so determined to to play out the role God has for us that we're willing to make those sacrifices? Yeah, so I don't mean to keep poking the the reader too much, but I guess I would ask, do you care whether someone reads it with that kind of intent or (laughs) or if they don't? This is a hilarious thing to ask an author, right? Because obviously we want people to read with intent. But in the end, all you really care about is that they bought the book and paid... No. Paid retail. Well, see, and this is why I kid. I this kid. is why I had to stop actually reading my reviews because I cannot tell you how many times, and I joked about this with my best friend who's my critique partner, that I would read a five star review and go, oh, they liked the wrong thing. <laughs> they, they said it was great, but they said it in the wrong way. They didn't get the right thing out of it. So there definitely comes a point where... You don't own it that much. They do have a part. Right, right. Where the author, you know, as an author, I have to realize that my job is obviously to tell the story God puts on my heart. But what you get out of it is up to you. And, you know, how much you put into the reading of the story and how much you pull out of the reading of a story, I only have so much control over that. So one of the things that I've always found um, frustrating with some of the reviews, because one of the things I do is sometimes curate reviews... Mm-hmm. So that you can, you know, put them out into the world so other people see how great books are. Because unless they're looking for it, they're not going to see it. But when you see one that's, like you say, it's five stars and it goes, uh, you know, highly entertaining. What? Yeah. yeah. We entertaining? It. What a cute story. A great beach read. Yeah, what it's a, like, no, it's not. A cute story? <laughs> right. You're going to call my thing cute? There are stories that are meant to be that and others that are not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So so you see the frustration there. I do. I I guess a part of me wishes that every book could and should be read on that level. And the truth is they probably don't need to be. And I think that that goes back to why making particular purposeful choices can have a subtle effect, whether they realize it or not. Like, again, this goes back to something we talked about a couple weeks ago of people don't know what they want. (laughs) Yeah. Right? No, like, they I, don't know why they're affected. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it goes back to my my little conjecture about what the purpose of art is and what it's supposed to do. That if I'm doing my job really well, I'm going to take some of that question out, right? Like, it's not a matter of, okay, let me stare at this for a while and see if I can get the symbolism. Was it, was it this? Does the green light mean this or that? And, you know, instead, I'm painting you a picture with my words that that makes it pretty clear. You know, there are obviously different levels and, you know, there are different levels as you're reading something depending on the mood you're in and how long a day it's been, how much you're picking up. Um, that's true for all of us all the time. But if an artist, if an artist manages to portray the, the world that they're seeing and the story that they're wanting to tell in a really good way, they're, they're pulling you on that journey, you know, whether whether you know it or not, right? So it, it becomes a little less subtle, though not so overt as to be a, a bludgeon or anything. Yeah, and I think that, again, because one of the subjects here is making purposeful choices and putting a lens on things is one of the purposes of a lens is to help people see clearly. Right, yeah, it's focusing you. Right. 
So it's not too like a funhouse mirror can be entertaining. <laughs> and there are times where I think that you put the funhouse mirror on people, um, but you're doing it for a particular effect in that right. in that case. So I think what I'm getting at is like sometimes it seems like the hardest choices to make are the most subtle ones. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I mean, I think because it's easy to decide on the big things and it's easy to, it's easy to remember that a mathematician is going to reference numbers and you know, different mathematical concepts a lot, but it's hard to work in the little details. Right. I think that's what makes it, you know, pop. Yeah. Like you didn't go out of your way to leave all sorts of abandonment imagery in Arabelle's story. No, no, for sure not. Like so much so that thinking back on it, like that wouldn't have been the thing that I would have remembered. No. Yeah. That, that is part of her story, but it's, you know, just, just a little part of her lens. Instead, it's just, you know, choices, in how she, for her in particular, how she sees the people around her. It's not, you know, a ton of, yeah, as you say, it's not a ton of abandonment imagery. It's just. Yeah, like you could go overboard with that, right? Like to go back to the color example, like you could turn it up to Technicolor. (laughs) Yes, you could. And there's a time and a place for that. Absolutely. But sometimes it's a subtler tweak that Mm -hmm. most people aren't going to notice. But you do notice, and that's a thing, right? And this is, This is why making these choices is so important, because when they're not there, people notice. Yeah. And a lot of it's going to be in in contrast. Like, I'll I'll use Band of Brothers again, because I think that in the color grading, it's it's really deliberate. You might not notice it when you're watching it until you flip the channel. Right. And then you see, you know, normal color and you're like, whoa. (laughs) The whole world is so washed out. (laughs) Who knew that France was gray in World War II? But yeah, so, and and the thing is, none of us exist with only one book in our hands, right? We're constantly, you know, reading, watching. I'm sorry. Even if it's just television or even if it's just talking to the people around you and hearing their stories, you're always interacting with more than one story. So the way it's presented will come across as in contrast to everything else. I will say, like, the other thing, going back to the Band of Brothers color thing, is... If they'd have just left the image flat, which is what they call it when it's ungraded, you would notice that too, right? Like you would go, it just looks wrong, right? Like, <laughs> and the same is true for, for writing, right? Is sometimes it just, it's just wrong. Yeah, it doesn't ring true. Doesn't ring true. And that's what these little choices give you. Yeah. They give you a, a bit more truth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like a... With some obvious examples, you know, you would notice if it was wrong if you have a deaf character who suddenly heard something, you know, that just was missed. Bad editing sort of thing. Um, But even more... Or even like they don't have... They have a perception that they shouldn't have as a deaf person. Right. Like they think things in a certain way. Right. That's what I was going to go with next. No, no, but that, you know, you realize that, you know, a character who has lived all their lives in rural Ohio of 1892 or, you know, whatever, they would not think about things in certain terms. I remember reading something years ago where it's, you know, this person who's never left her hometown, but she's using all this exotic imagery 
And it made me ask, because this was before something was published, it made me ask, does she read a lot? Is, is she always, you know, drowning herself in adventure novels? Why is she thinking of everything in terms of, you know, tsunamis and hurricanes and all these big forces of nature that don't strike Ohio? Right, like where the truth would be, like, it would be rustling grain or, yeah. you yeah. know, the so, thunder or, you know, the sound of rain on the tin roof. That would be the... right. The traditional so there, way. There are times when, you know, the author is trying to be artistic and bring in all this beautiful imagery, but if the character would not know that imagery, it's going to strike the reader as off, as wrong. Um, because we do notice these things. So, yeah, so it's really important. Thank you for listening today as we talked about characters and how authors make choices to create compelling ones in our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading. Come back next week to hear our thoughts on writing and reading as part of a community and how others help us be better. This podcast is sponsored by Read at Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose ordinary when you can read extraordinary? Unexpressed is part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love. Thank you.